You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Father God, uh, we just want to thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that our hearts would truly know that he is enough for us. Lord, that if we have nothing, we still have everything. Because Jesus is enough for me. Lord, the brokenness of the world, the reality that we face, difficulties and challenges in the search for why are we here? Why do we even exist at all, Lord? We know that we exist to to know you and to glorify you. Lord, help that to be enough for us. Not just that we're singing a song, Lord, but we're actually feeling it in our hearts, in our soul, in our very being. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you were with us last week, we began our uh, new series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon there set the stage for his teaching throughout Ecclesiastes, telling the listeners that all is this Hebrew word, hevel, that everything under the sun is a vapor or wind or, as many translations put it, vanity or meaninglessness or futility, that there will be no, there will never be an end to the longing for something more if all we do is chase our own tails and try to capture the wind. If all that exists is here on the earth, if meaning is to be found here on the earth, then we will never find it because it all just vaporizes. He wanted us to really feel the weight of what he is driving at, that there is meaning to life, but it's not found in the earthly things. It isn't found in this world. It isn't found in something that has been created. And if we are searching for meaning, or we are searching for joy, or we search for satisfaction in the creation, we will constantly be hungry. We will never be satisfied. Now here recently, my boys have been watching a lot of YouTube videos. And we have limited their YouTube experience to only consumption of educational videos. We have put a a tag on they can't just watch anything they want. They have to watch educational videos. And one of the educational video guys they like is it used to be a NASA engineer. And I love and I appreciate the mind of an engineer. They're very analytical. They're very thoughtful. They're very calculating. They love to see a problem and find out how to solve it. But with seeing a problem and solving the problem, there are often mistakes. You have to do experiments. There are often bumps in the road, so you have to do an experiment after experiment. And to run a good experiment, you have to see the problem and attack it from all different types of angles. And when these engineers are finished with their research and their models, they can bring back a report on what worked and what didn't work and how to solve the problem in the future. Now, what is this experiment with an engineer have to do with Ecclesiastes? Well, see, Solomon sees a problem. He knows that life under the sun is fleeting, that it is simply a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow, but he still wants to find meaning. So what does he do? He sets up an experiment. He works on his problem like an engineer. He wants to try all the variables and see if he can figure out the meaning to life. This is what can only be called an hedonistic experiment. 
Now, hedonism, if you don't know, is, a, is defined as the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of the satisfaction of desires, is a, the highest good and the proper aim of the human life. Essentially, hedonism tells us that if it feels good, do it. Or that if it makes you happy, do it. Now, the problem with hedonism is that it leaves us empty. It's a philosophy, though, that permeates and penetrates our whole society. It's what social media was built on. Those quick little dopamine hits that make us feel good in the moment, but ultimately leave us, ultimately leave us empty. When we get a notification on our phone and somebody has snapped us back, or we get a notification on our phone because somebody liked our video or, or picture on Instagram, or we get a notification on our phone that, you know, somebody has angered you or you have angered somebody. Whatever it is, that quick little dopamine hit is what this hedonistic experiment is chasing after. Now, if it feels good, do it is the motto of the American dream, is it not? But what we are going to see this morning is that emptiness is at the end of the promise of pleasure. That Solomon's hedonistic experiment is going to prove that point. That he is going to try pleasure to the extreme. That he is going to chase after what offers happiness. And he is going to let every natural instinct run wild. Why would Solomon qualify for such an experiment? Well, Solomon was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. Just a small picture of his wealth in 2 Chronicles 9.13, the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually every year was 25 tons. 25 tons of gold. He had no shortage of money. Not only that, but he is counted as the wisest man to ever live. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12 says this, this is God speaking to Solomon. I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. <coughs> Excuse me. He had more money. He had more wisdom. He had more influence and power than we could ever imagine. And yet, what did he find? That nothing under the sun would satisfy him. That there was nothing on this earthly plane that he could do that would satisfy him. We're about to read about part of his experiments, but before we do, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer and ask him to open our eyes. Father God, we pray that as we dive into your word in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Lord, that you would open our eyes to what it is you would have us to see, that you would penetrate our heart. Lord, that at the end we would know that Jesus is all that we need, that nothing else will satisfy, that nothing else will quench the longing we have. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12 says this, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is under heaven. God has given his people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. So the first thing we see is this futile search that Solomon is engaging in. Earlier in this service, we read part of Proverbs chapter 1. Interesting to note that the same man who penned most of the Proverbs is the one who was talking in Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs, he posts up of the importance of wisdom, and here he posits the limits of that wisdom. So in Proverbs, he wants us to know that it's good to be wise, and here he goes, is it really worth it? So what's going on here? 
Notice that Proverbs, he talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Yet here in Ecclesiastes, he wants to he is focusing primarily on his own mind and he's focusing primarily on his own knowledge. And that is a theme of Ecclesiastes and especially the section from the end of chapter one to the end of chapter two. The focal point is different from Proverbs. Here he's talking about worldly or earthly wisdom, not about godly or pure or true wisdom. And this is where he tells us that he is going to set up the experiment to find meaning in life. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. Solomon is taking his experiences. He is taking his knowledge and he is looking out at the world for meaning. As stated earlier, he is perfect for the task because of all the money, the wisdom, the influence, and the power that he had. There is nobody better equipped to delve into the depths of everything under the sun than Solomon. And here's a trap that many of us have fallen into. In fact, I've fallen into it as well. That the pursuit of knowledge will give you a fulfilled life. You see, I love to learn. I love to grow. I love to gain knowledge. In fact, there's kind of a joke at our house that sometimes I'm like Johnny Five from the movie Short Circuit. Need more input. I need more input. While I was attending school, I was gaining knowledge and wisdom, and it felt like the highest of callings. And this is true for many great thinkers. Those who sit in their ivory towers and ponder things all day long. Have you ever encountered the person that is the know-it-all, who learns a lot? Not in the humble way, but in the braggy way where they're always trying to one-up you with the thing that they know. They can be insufferable. And I know this because, unfortunately, I am one, and we are raising one as well. In fact, I was getting out of the shower this morning, and Levi came in and goes, Hey, Dad, do you know what the five states of matter are? I'm like, I'm, I'm wet. No, I don't. I don't know right now what they are, right? But the pursuit of knowledge is not necessarily a bad thing. But based on the words that uh, Solomon is using here, he examined and explored. Some translations use the word seek and search. This wasn't just a one-off observation. He was diligently searching for the truth. He was diligently seeking to know and to find meaning. He was on a mission, and his quest was extensive and intensive. Just imagine a man who was looking for lost treasure, and he knew that there had to be somewhere close. And so day after day and night after night, he is seeking and searching diligently. That's the type of image that we get from Solomon here as we read about his journey into finding meaning. But again, his problem is where that is here is that he was seeking with earthly wisdom and not divine wisdom, that he wasn't using God to find meaning. He was finding, using himself. That's why he gets so frustrated in his pursuit. He's missing the mark. He's he's started off on the wrong starting line. I want you to hear me clearly. Seeking wisdom and even worldly wisdom is not inherently bad. But if if that's the end of the pursuit, it will end with frustration and it will end with grief. The problem with worldly wisdom is that it informs the mind, but it does not transform the heart. It's held completely in the mind while not sitting on the heart. And that's why we can philosophize and debate till we are blue in the face, but it won't change people's heart. And expending all this energy led Solomon to emptiness. And that led to a negative attitude toward God and towards this world. Did you notice that in verse 13? I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. Those are some rough words from our teacher. If I stood up here and told you that God has given us a miserable task, that would be a little awkward, wasn't it, wouldn't it? 
I'm not sure if you notice it or not, but this is the first time that Solomon mentions God in Ecclesiastes. And in fact, here he uses this word miserable. And in the Hebrew, it's this word ra'ah, which can be translated either bad or evil. So Solomon is making a moral judgment on God's design for this life. It's not just a miserable task. It's a bad business. Solomon is criticizing God because he has found that nothing under the sun has meaning. There is no meaning. There's no hope. All the work of understanding, of searching and attaining wisdom and knowledge is toilsome and ultimately unfruitful because it does not satisfy. And he's looking for answers. And he's seeking. And he's examining. And he's exploring. And he's coming up empty. What he's doing here is challenging the notion that the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of wisdom is sati- will satisfy you. Like a hamster spinning in the wheels of life, the goal will never be attained through earthly wisdom. You will never find meaning through earthly wisdom, through pursuing knowledge. Solomon is just saying something out loud that I'm sure many of us have felt at one time or another. We've cried out to God asking, what is the meaning of this? What is the purpose of life? I feel at times like all I do at work is toil and it's bad business. That I work and I work and I work and I never find fulfillment. I never find hope. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But that's the point. The, this toil, this endless feeling of chasing this carrot is meant to drive us to something deeper, into the true meaning found not in the things of this world, not in the work that I do, but in the creator of the universe. Remember that Solomon is pushing us to rediscover and to recover Eden, to long for reconstruction and restoration of meaningful work. When all our focus and all our energy is put into the temporal things, under the sun, it is fruitless. It is frustrating. We don't find ultimate meaning. We don't see that we have any significance. And we all long for significance, don't we? But we will never find true and lasting significance under the sun. We need to look past this earth to the God that is reigning from his throne. We need to know that as followers of Jesus, our work isn't to search into toilsome meaninglessness, We are to pursue him. We are to focus on him. We are to have our eyes on him. If our focus is on the work and we never take the time to look at the Lord, then we feel like what we are doing isn't working. We may feel like justified blaming God and criticizing God for the bad business he has brought us into. But if we know the character of God and if we know the person of God, if we take a moment and just stop to think about how and why God has created us, we won't fall into this trap. Solomon's problem is that when he looked into the world and used his wisdom to examine and to explore the world for meaning, it was that he was searching for meaning, but he was searching for it under the sun inside of creation. So here Solomon is giving us the conclusion to his experiment before he even tells us what he has experimented with, that this is bad business based on his conclusions, on his personal experience, He wants us to know what he has found. It's like that engineer given the report. He gives you what he has found, and then he tells you how he found it. What does he say in verse 14? I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. All things done under the sun are hevel, a vapor, a smoke. All the exploration, all the examining, all the trials, all the wisdom that he used, it's all empty. And again, we need to have perspective 
and earthly and under the sun perspective is empty. But we know that God is working out his plan. And with our eyes on him, we can gain perspective. Here's something that Solomon is missing when he comes to his observations. That there is beauty in the mundane. That there is beauty in the toil. That there is beauty in the day-to-day life. And what I mean is this, is that when we stop and we take a step back and realize that every day is a gift from God, then we can see the beauty in what seems to be futile. The fact that God has chosen us as his sons and daughters, that he has invited us into his kingdom, gives our life purpose, and it gives our life meaning. Most of us look for purpose in the big decisions of life. Who are we going to marry? What job are we going to have when we grow up? Where am I going to go to college? Like, where am I going to live? And those are all important, but for whatever reason, we give less credence and thought to the mundane reality of life. That each decision you make every single day, not just the big ones, have an impact on your mind, they have an impact on your future, and they have an impact on your character. Think about a gardener, right? That's what Solomon is kind of pointing us to. He wants us to long for Eden so that we can move towards restoring Eden in our circle of influence. Now, harvest time is the big time for a gardener, picking that fruit off the vines, right? But each decision that led up to the harvest is equally, if not more important, The tilling of the land, the choosing of the seed, the depth that the seed goes into the soil, the watering and protecting the seed day in and day out. It is what you, it is, and it is only until you have completed those steps that you get to the harvest. The mundane toil of life is where the fruit and the harvest will change and grow. There is beauty in the toil. There is beauty in the mundane. This is where you as a follower of Jesus bring glory and honor to God. Sometimes we want a movie life where we just see the highlights. But Alfred Hitchcock said this. He said that a movie is just real life with all the boring parts cut out. But the boring parts of life is where you are transformed. The boring parts of life are where you get to live the life that God has called you to. The boring parts of life is where you get to glorify God in what he has given you. You don't get just the big decisions. You have to live life one day, one moment at a time. And when we understand that the toil and the mundane are opportunities for us to do our work, not for ourselves, but to bring glory for God, we find meaning. And when we realize that it's not just the big decisions that honor God, but every choice we make brings honor and glory to him, your whole life, all the toil, all the struggle, all the relationships, all the conversations, your whole life has meaning when we look at it from God's perspective because you belong to him. When we were going through the book of John, especially toward the end of the book of John, um, I I wanted us to really see our life was to imitate Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It means that our life should be about pointing others to the person of God, pointing beyond ourselves to the glory of God. In fact, our whole life, the reason we were created was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we minimize our life, we minimize our purpose and our meaning when we limit it to the things of this world. We have to zoom out and see the bigger picture. We have to look at God and attempt to see what he sees. And we need to interact with people in a way that will honor God. As his children, we carry his name. And it can be hard for us to realize that many of the things we chase after here on earth really don't matter. That may, they may be important for the immediate, uh, the immediate context, but they don't ultimately amount to anything. That's why Solomon points to the futility of everything under the sun, because nothing lasts forever. It's all a vapor. It's all 
Hevel. But now Solomon introduces another phrase in verse 14 that's going to show up from time to time in Ecclesiastes as well. And it carries the same weight as that word Hevel does, vapor or smoke. And he says, it is a pursuit of the wind, or as some translations say, chasing after the wind. I don't know if you can feel the emptiness in this phrase or not, but no one can catch the wind. You can't catch it. And how foolish would we look if we went outside and we started trying to capture the wind, trying to chase after it. It would be meaningless. It would be a fruitless endeavor. He wants us to see that life on this earth without proper perspective is futile and frustrating. I think about during the summer when my kids are playing with bubbles outside and they're chasing after the bubbles. And what, what kid, and, and most adults, don't like chasing after bubbles? We love chasing after bubbles. But what happens when we try to catch them? They pop. They cease to exist. And though it was fun in the moment, the play was ultimately fruitless. You never caught a bubble. You never were able to take a bubble to show your parents. Right? So in this little experiment, he's going to show us that chasing after the wind, chasing after wisdom and pleasure and possessions and work are the same thing as chasing after the wind or chasing after bubbles. So the question is, why is this so? When God created the world, he saw that it was very good. And how can something declared very good by the creator of the universe, a perfect and holy and righteous God, be viewed as toilsome, tiresome, and meaningless to Solomon? Did God create the meaninglessness? Was God's declaration of very good wrong? In the search for meaning, is the search for meaning tainted and unattainable? Well, if all we have is God's word, and God's word was the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, we would probably come to the conclusion that it is. But we have a whole collection of God's revelation to us. So we know that there is more than this defective creation. We know that we play a part in this brokenness. But we have to realize that the reality of the brokenness is there. That there is brokenness in this world, and that's why it seems futile. And this is Solomon, is what Solomon's going to lean into right now, knowing that wisdom and knowledge will never fix the brokenness. In fact, nothing under the sun will. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says this, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now one of the core tenets of the Christian worldview is that the world is broken, that things aren't as they should be. People have a longing for things as they should be. If we really examine our lives and the world around us, carefully we'll see the disparity between what is and what ought to be. And that's what Solomon is focusing on here. We see this in verse 15 where he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. In wisdom literature, the word crooked is a metaphor for sin or moral brokenness, which is what Ecclesiastes falls into the wisdom literature of the Bible. No matter what we try to do, no matter how hard we want to straighten it out, it is crooked, and we are fruitless in that. A crooked stick can never be a straight stick. When humanity departed from God's design in the Garden of Eden, that's what made things crooked. Our sin and our rebellion is never straight. We have the capacity to, do, to take what God has deemed good, and we distort it and make it crooked. In fact, distorting what God has made good is a superpower for humans. Just a real couple, quick couple of examples. The first one is sex, right? This is a beautiful gift from God. And when done in the proper context of a married man and woman, it's how God intended it to be. But we've come along and we've distorted it through pornography 
or sex outside of marriage, through homosexuality, we've taken what God has deemed good and changed it into something crooked. And for what reason? The pursuit of pleasure. We try to find meaning in what God has done, but at the same time, we're distorting it. Well, what about when we're providing for our family through work? As far as family is concerned, and, and we are parents, we're called to take care of our family, our, our children, right? But oftentimes, this can lead to neglecting the kids in order to make enough money to provide for the kids. Or it can lead to greed, always wanting more because there's never enough. It could lead to unhealthy relationships with work, where we become workaholics. Again, we're taking a good thing, work, and we're distorting it. We're taking what God has designed, and we've made it crooked. Not only do we distort and make things crooked, sometimes we're crooked. <laughs> and sometimes we just have to realize we live in a crooked and broken world. Some of our circumstances, no matter how hard we try, will never be fixed. We can't avoid sickness. We can't avoid the, our degrading bodies. We can't avoid death. We can't avoid people treating us badly. We can't avoid broken and disappointing relationships. These are realities in the broken world that we live in. And to take it a step further, verse four, uh, 15, what does it mean when he says, what is lacking cannot be counted? What is lacking cannot be counted. What does that mean? It means that there is emptiness that we don't even know that we are missing. There's emptiness that we don't even know about. If it's lacking, it can't even, can't even be accounted for. We don't even know that it's not there. We may be looking for it, but it's completely gone. We aren't even aware of what's missing. Or even what's missing is beyond measure. Talk about a very gloomy outlook on life. We can't straighten out what we can see, and we don't know everything that we are missing. Something is always going to be either crooked or missing. And that may be gloomy, and that may sound dark, it may even sound a little disappointing. But we have to come to the realization if we're going to see the good news. We will never be able to hold on to the gospel of Jesus if we don't know that things aren't okay. The things are simply as they aren't as they should be. This understanding that things are crooked and lacking force us to look past ourselves into something greater, to someone greater. In order to know there, there is good news, we have to know that there is bad news. And the bad news is that we are broken and we are crooked. And without Jesus, we are missing something. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. I said to myself, see, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied to my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that to do, or this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with which much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. So Solomon is acknowledging here the limits of wisdom. And what's his conclusion? It's simply that ignorance is bliss. That is better to be ignorant than it is to know. That's what it says right there, right? For much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. If you don't want to know sorrow and, and grief, then you don't know wisdom. He once again states that wisdom is greater than those who have come before, his wisdom is greater than those who have come before him and those who will come after him. Again, this is a biblical teaching found in 1 Kings 3.12. And he used the wisdom and knowledge he gained to seek a way to make the crooked straight. He wanted to figure out how to take what was crooked and make it straight and to find the things that he didn't even know he was missing. But what did he find that he can't find it? That's not there. He's chasing after bubbles. One touch of the fingertip. 
It's gone. Not only did he apply wisdom and knowledge, but he also thought about madness and folly. Notice grouping of words madness and folly in the Hebrew refer to living foolishly. That's living in open rebellion against God and his commands. See, he tried to discern what was right and wrong. And we're going to look more about that in next week as we study chapter 2 when we get into the actual experiment. But what we are going to do with this passage, what are we going to do with this? That there is futility in everything. How are we going to look at this scripture in verses 12 through 18 and see the fingerprints of God? How are we going to reconcile God's placement of this scripture when it seems to stand against much of what the rest of the Bible teaches? Remember what I said last week, what I said earlier. One of the purposes of Ecclesiastes is to poke at our longing for restoration. To toil, the toil in this life is to push us to want to restore and to recover Eden. So here's how we examine Solomon's conundrum. One, we look at the perspective and the pronouns used in these verses. In these verses, in these few short, what, seven verses, ten times he uses the pronouns I, me, and my. It's very focused on him. His perspective is wrong. And this is where we need the gospel. If our perspective on life is always me, myself, and I, there's no way we can find the cure for what ails us. We cannot overcome the crookedness of this world. We cannot know what is hidden. But we don't need to. God knows the brokenness. He sees the crookedness, and he made a way for restoration. You see, we can't rely on ourselves. We have to rely on Jesus to fix the problem, knowing that he will ultimately put back together the broken pieces. We cannot make sense of the world from our own perspective. Trying to understand the ins and the outs of life is impossible without a divine perspective. Trying to make sense of suffering, of love, beauty, and purpose is impossible without God's perspective. The brokenness in Ecclesiastes is meant to drive us to Jesus, to point us to the cross, to see that there is only one answer for this meaningless life, and his name is Jesus, because Jesus gives us meaning. Loving Jesus and worshiping him with our lives fixes our longing for something new because we have something better. It provides us with perspective. The longing and the searching for something better has, been, has made its way deep inside of us. And not only in us, but also in all of creation. And I want to close by rereading the scripture that was read earlier by Emma in, first, or in Romans verses 8, through, or 8, 8, 18 through 30. And I want us to look at it from this perspective. That Solomon sees the brokenness in creation, but Paul is pointing to the restoration found in Jesus. Okay? So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we, we ourselves have felt who, who live in the Spirit ha, as its first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what is seen? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we don't know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us 
with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined by, to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What Paul is driving at here is that there will be a day when Jesus restores everything to its rightful order. Where what ought to be, will be. That there will no longer be any longing. We will be living in the perfect creation, perfection of Christ's creation. There will be no more longing. It'll be finished. Our calling and longing for that day. While we live here on this earth, we are trying to make this world just a little bit better around us. And we do this by knowing that our purpose in mind, that God, Christ saved us for good works, and that he uses the toils and the struggles of everyday life to conform us into his image. So as we live in Christ, there is no meaninglessness. Everything has hope. His purpose gives our life purpose. And he straight, straightens out what is crooked. I want to close with this quote. It's a short quote from Thomas Watson. And he said this, God can make a straight stroke with a crooked stick. Praise the Lord, that's true. Because you are a crooked stick, but God can make a straight stroke with it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the hope that we find in the gospel, Lord, that even though things are broken, we know that you can fix them. Even though we are sinners, we know that you will save us and you will conform us into Jesus' image. And Lord, though we, there may seem to be hopelessness and meaningless all around us, Lord, we know that you are the meaning. We know that you give our lives and we know that you or will we find our truest joy? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing some songs together. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.